Good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning and uh, looking forward to this opportunity now at the time of our worship where we get to open God's Word and to, to study it. I hope uh, that you're here with your Bible in hand and uh, hopefully uh, something to take some notes with and ready to open your mind and heart uh, with me to God's Word and what it has to say. If you're visiting with us, we're very grateful and very thankful to have you with us. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew and Um, I will certainly indicate some pages there to help you find some of these passages uh, a little bit quicker as we get to them. Today we continue our series on the need for fundamentals, the basic building blocks, the principles that we need to be successful in our discipleship, our service to God. And so we'll continue to be examining the lessons that Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Before we get into our title today, which is, again, Being Like the Salt and Being Like Light. I thank Bill for reading that passage for us this morning. Um, And the ultimate goal of this is, as it ends, to bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. So I think if I were to ask anyone in this room, do you want to bring glory to God? I think we'd all say yes. So then the next question is, well, how do we do that? How can we bring glory? glory to God. And so we're going to talk about that today, and it certainly is related to this concept or this idea of being like salt and being like light. Before we get into that text and and make some points from that, just want to go back quickly and go over the basic principles we've established so far in regards to the need for fundamentals. And I would encourage you, as these are going to be extremely quick uh, review, that uh, if you have not got these lessons, they're on the the website. You could go back and you can listen to them. I'm not going to have time to go through the passages as, as we did in depth, but I'm more than glad to share my slides with you. So if you are absent from one of these lessons and you'd like to listen to it, it's on the website. If you'd like the slides to go with it, simply send me a, a text or an email. I'll be glad uh, to send those to you. We started this series off, though, with this point about the need for fundamentals, the basic things in life And we made the point that you need them in everything. We need fundamentals, we need basic skills to accomplish everything, to grow. And that even once we have established the fundamentals and we've moved on to more challenging things, we still come back and we do these basic, simple tasks. And and we go over these basic skills. And that is how we continue to grow. And the biggest point that we made was that, and maybe the most critical mistake that Uh, those in the Bible made over and over, was they would forget God. And we looked at a lot of passages that told us they would, in fact, we just read one recently in, again, the Wednesday Bible study. I mean, throughout the book of Jeremiah, it's just over and over, they forgot God. And God warned them that they would forget if they did not keep their focus on Him and remember Him. Uh, We just partook of the Lord's Supper, and our brother Chris did a lesson on Sunday and the home Bible study on Monday about the significance of the Lord's Supper and remembering. And I appreciated his connection to 9-11 because 9-11 is something that we often say we don't want to forget. We want to remember this event as a country. And why do we want to remember? Well, we want to make sure we don't let our guard down. We want to make sure we honor those who lost their lives and, and sacrificed for us. And all great reasons, but we do that once a year. And probably throughout the year, we do forget about 9 11. 
And then when 9-11 comes back, we remember it and we think about it. And maybe it makes us emotional and maybe it causes us to, to do some things. But this is so much greater, as Chris pointed out last Sunday. This is our service to God. This is His Son coming to die on the cross for our sins. To be resurrected from the dead. And every single Sunday, we get to partake as we just finished doing so the Lord's Supper, and to remember what Jesus did for us, to remember who God is. And I would challenge us to think about this question. If God is constantly on my mind, if this sacrifice, Jesus, his death on the cross, the pain, as our brother Bob talked about, that sometimes we suffer and we feel, and then we realize how much greater the pain Jesus suffered was. If those things are constantly on our mind, isn't it going to be awfully difficult to find ourselves engaged in sin, engaged in worldliness and carnality? I think it's going to be really difficult to be engaged in those things when Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection is on our mind. But we have to be proactive. We have to be intentional. We have to be mindful. We have to be relentless in our work ethic. We have to put things in place that are going to make that happen. We can't just show up on Sunday, I took the Lord's Supper and I'm good for the entire week. Because we know Satan is out there. Satan is relentless himself. He's coming after us. He knows our weaknesses. And if we don't have a system in place throughout the week where we are constantly reminded, and it can be different for all of us, But we need something in place every single day that helps us remember God, remember Jesus, what he did for me. What do I need to do for him? Am I thankful? We talked about the importance of being thankful as well. So remembering God, remembering Christ and that sacrifice, relentless about our efforts and our our being intentional and, and that we would never forget, never forget who God is and what he's done for us. In our second lesson, we went back to the beginning, the creation. And these points, again, just emphasize what we've already said. Some really profound things can be learned simply from the first few chapters of Genesis. And again, quickly, they were, one, God is the creator of all things. And he identifies how powerful he is by simply speaking these things into existence. And at the end of each of those, he said, indeed, it was good. What a great reminder of how powerful our creator is. And not only did he create the world and everything around us, but he created us. God made me. He gave me life. He made me in his image. Are we thankful? Are we impressed by that? Are we appreciative for life? Do we wake up every morning thankful to God for our health and for our life and for our physical abilities and for the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that we're going to be going to heaven. Are we thankful for those things? If we are, it's going to help us in being the people that we need to be every day. And the third point was that we must heed God's word only. We looked at Adam and Eve and it was noted that, that God reprimands Adam and says, You listened to the the words of your wife. You did not heed my words. And we must be careful that even someone as close as a spouse, someone who we trust and love and, and care deeply about, 
could lead us with words that are contrary to what God teaches. And so we must know what God's words are, and we must be engaged and obeying them. And if we do well, we said from the story of Cain and Abel, if we do well, we're going to be accepted. And that's what was told to Cain. Cain had an opportunity to fix his mistake. God told him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? He had an opportunity to fix it. Serving God, obeying God, and this point just continues to be impressed upon me as Chris leads us on Wednesday nights in the Jeremiah study. It's not difficult. It's not difficult to understand how to be pleasing to God. Over and over, it's a simple message of, hear my words, obey my commandments, love me with your heart. Simple, easy things that even a child can understand. So then why is it we're told only few will be saved? Because people are engaged in their self and their own desires. And so we have to be willing to give up our selfish ambitions. And we have to be willing to make sacrifice and be committed and be focused on God's word on a daily basis. And we can't get bored with that. We must appreciate God every single day. And sin lies at the door. That's what Cain was told. Sin lies at the door, but you can't rule over it. God has given us something. As strong as Satan is, as powerful as he is, as much as he knows our weaknesses, we have the ability, through God, the things that he has given us to overcome and to get to heaven. It's up to us to take what he has given and to use it. And then we went to the Sermon on the Mount. And we went through the Beatitudes. And so I have a couple things that I want to follow up with and and conclude that we didn't get to the last time we spoke about the Beatitudes. And we went through each one of these in in some detail, talked about what they meant, so I'm not going to do that again. But there they are, the eight Beatitudes that Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount with. And each of those, by themselves, can be a challenging characteristic that we have to put on in our life. And for some of us, we might struggle with different ones more than others, but it's not a pick one and you're good. It's do all these things. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want these blessings that are listed next to these characteristics? Then the only way to get them are to put these things on. Jesus says, you'll be blessed. A promise that we all want, but are we willing to put in the work and the commitment required to examine our life, to examine these eight Beatitudes, and to to get better at them, to practice them? Am I willing to put away my arrogant attitude and be humble? Uh, Or do I have to be right all the time? Have you ever known someone that they just, they cannot rest unless they're right? And they'll argue with you until you basically give in. That, that's not the poor in spirit. That's not the meek. That's not the merciful. That's not the pure in heart. Can I show mercy to others, including my enemies and those who hate me and mistreat me? Can I be a peacemaker in every single situation? So any of these uh, could be things that are areas where we need to improve upon in our life. And we had this kind of summary slide. 
One who is humble, caring, giving, serving, desperate to be like God, merciful, compassionate, always seeking peace and persecuted, will be blessed. Will go to heaven. Be comforted. Have a good life on earth. Be with God and be the sons of God. Everyone, I don't think anyone in this room would look at the will and the reward there and say, no, I don't want those. We all want those. We all want the reward. We all want to go to heaven. We all want to be comforted by God. But are we willing to put in the work that it takes to get them? And this is why few will get those blessings. Because it does take a great deal of effort and sacrifice and work. As we talked about in that lesson, this is really the complete opposite of the world. The world teaches against those things. The world says, be arrogant, get yours, do whatever it takes, lie, cheat. Uh, The complete opposite of this list. And that was going on at the time of Jesus in that world as well. And Jesus is teaching, no, you, you need to be the opposite of what the world is saying you should be. Luke chapter 6, if you have a Bible, Pew Bible, it's page 694. If you'll turn over to Luke chapter 6, page 694 in a Pew Bible. Just want to read a few verses here that go with the Beatitudes of Matthew 5. Now, you will find, if you do some research on this, there are people out there that believe that the Luke 6 account is uh, the same Sermon on the Mount that is brought up in Matthew 5. You'll also find people that say, no, it's, it's not the same, and it's a, a different time that Jesus teaches. And, and I'm not here to, to pick one side or the other. Um, I tend to think that they're both a Sermon on the Mount, but I could see arguments for both. Uh, we've seen Jesus before teach similar types of lessons and, and make points that are very similar. Uh, but there are certainly some things in Luke 6 that, that very much connect Uh, and are very close to what is said in Matthew 5. So on occasion, I will take us over to Luke 6 to make some connecting points. So listen to what Luke says. This is chapter 6, starting in verse 20. Look what he says about this concept of the Beatitudes and those that are going to be blessed and those that are going to go to heaven because he does phrase it a little bit differently. And uh, remember, Matthew is, of course, writing to a Jewish audience and, and Luke uh, more to um, Theophilus, right? So again, that could be some, some reasoning for a different audience as well and to how he wrote it. So Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20. Then he lifted up his eyes towards his disciples and said, Blessed are you, poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when, you, when men hate you and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to, did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So first, and we're going to touch on this back in Matthew in just a moment, 
this point that he makes about being uh, hated by men, excluded by men, reviled by men, cast out as evil for the Son of Man's sake. And, and what should our response be that? Now, remember, they're doing those things because of Jesus. That you're living like Jesus. You're teaching Jesus. That's why they're doing these things. That's why they're excluding you. It's not because of uh, anything else. I mean, it could be for, for other reasons, but this is the reason to rejoice. If they're treating this you this way because you are acting like Christ, then you should rejoice and leap for joy. What a, what a significant thing to think about in our rejoicing, that we're literally jumping in the air. I think of a young child excited on Christmas Day, jumping in the air with excitement. Do we have that type of excitement when we're mistreated for Jesus' name's sake? And indeed, our reward in heaven is great. So the first part of that is, if you are hungering now, if you are weeping now, if men are hating you now, that's okay. Because you're going to get yours in heaven. You'll be filled, you'll laugh, you'll leap for joy. Great is your reward. And then the last part of that, verses 24 to 26, I, I like the way Luke puts this because there were men at this time that were fighting for their riches then. And they were mistreating each other and, and acting the opposite of, of the beatitude so they could be rich and they could be full and they could laugh in this life. And what does Jesus say? Verse 24 you have received your consolation. You have received your reward. You've got yours, and it's what you have right now in front of you. But when this life is over, that's all going to be gone. And you are going to be weeping, and you're going to be mourning, and you're going to be extremely sad. You will not be leaping for joy when this life is over. So it is so important that we consider our own life, consider what Jesus taught about these Beatitudes and striving to apply them and put them to use and grow in our life in these areas. One more thing about the context of this, and I, I should have brought this up in our last lesson, but as you probably recall, right before the Sermon on the Mount, what has Jesus done? He selected the 12 apostles, right? And if you remember, before he selects them, he goes off and he prays all night. He's praying all night before he's about to choose the 12 men that he will call apostles that will follow him and that will go off and do this great work for him. And I was just kind of struck by that and impressed by that to think about because the word disciples is often used as well. And in this text, it says there's a multitude. It says the disciples are there, and obviously the apostles are there. And so these disciples are following Jesus, and they could be good people, and they could be faithful and obedient people, but they weren't selected to be apostles. And you think about the apostles, with the exception of Judas, what great work that they're going to do, and what great suffering that they're going to go through. When you really think about that, all this makes sense that Jesus would start with this message. No matter what happens to you, no matter how people treat you, you've got to be poor in spirit, you've got to mourn, you've got to be meek, you've got to hunger for thirst and righteousness. It, it makes sense why he would teach this lesson to them.
and why he would warn them that they're going to be mistreated and reviled and hated. And that's going to happen to every one of them. We know John is the only one that doesn't die the martyr's death. And, and yet he still suffered. Not as, as, as to the extent that the other apostles did. But what a, a critical and important teaching that the apostles needed to hear. But it wasn't just for the apostles. The disciples were there. The multitude was there. There were others there that needed this message as well. So turning back to Matthew chapter 5, the end of that says, again in verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Much like we just read in Luke chapter 6, but a little bit different, but same concept, that he is driving home this point. And and I think he, he tries to cover everything they could possibly do. It even says, when they say evil things against you falsely. So they're not even physically doing something here. They're just saying something evil about them, a lie about them. And we all know how that can feel. We've all felt what it's like when someone says something evil about you or something that's false about you. It's not enjoyable. And yet, if you're doing what, doing this for the, the, the name and the sake of Jesus Christ, you can rejoice in that. Because however you feel now, great is your reward in heaven. You're not going to remember any of that in heaven. You're not going to care about how people mistreated you when you're in heaven. You're going to be leaping for joy. You're going to be so ecstatic that you're in heaven with God and Christ and all the saints. So that takes us to, that takes us to the end of our study of the Beatitudes and into uh, our study this morning on salt and light. So this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 that our brother Tomlinson read. In the Pew Bible, it's page 651. So again, I encourage you to have your Bible open. We'll look at these verses again and talk about um, what it means for us. As Jesus says, we are to be the salt. We are to be light. What does that mean? What is he talking about? What does that look like in our life? So your Bible heading probably says the similitudes, right? Just like it said the Beatitudes. A word that's not really used, but you can see why they put that title because it means a visible likeness and a point of comparison. So salt and light is a point of comparison. Our lives as disciples of Christ is going to be compared to being like salt and being like light. And we know as a disciple of Christ, we're striving to be exactly like him. We're striving to emulate him. We're striving to understand his commands and be obedient in every way. We know Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So we always, as Christians, are striving to do that. Okay, so Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? If it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So what is salt? We, we know that still today we use salt in these same ways, but um, for them it certainly was something that had flavor on its own. You could add it to things to increase the flavor of certain foods, a seasoning. 
We know that it was also used to preserve meats, especially fish, in the, in the days of Jesus, and that would allow those things to last longer. And so when we say that's, that's the specific definition of salt, well, okay, what does that have to mean for me as, as a Christian, as a disciple? Well, as salt, do we not stand out? Do we not have some flavor and some seasoning about us in our life and how we live? Um, at that time, salt was, was precious. It was a, a really valuable uh, commodity. And people wanted it, and sometimes they'd even use it in trade. And so, are we valuable? Are we important to, to God, to the world, to our brethren? Uh, do we have, as Christians, a preserving factor about us? Can we help the lost and the world be saved? Can we help preserve their soul for eternity? So in that way, I think, again, we are like salt. As disciples, we are preserving, we are striving to teach the wicked world so they can be saved, so they can be preserved. So I think, for us, we're going to be noticeable. People are going to recognize us. We are going to have a positive effect and influence upon other people in the world. And that's how we are in comparison to salt. As salt can lose its flavor, can we as Christians lose our flavor like salt? Well, yeah, the text tells us that we can. And it tells us what happens to us if we lose our flavor. We become useless. Uh, We become useless to the world, the lost world. We're useless before God. We're useless to ourselves and our salvation is at risk. If salt loses its flavor, its seasoning, it's going to be thrown out. Men threw it out. It was useless. This commodity that was so precious to them would be thrown out on the ground and stoppled on by men. And history tells us that a lot of the salt at that time was gathered from the marsh. And so it wasn't a pure salt. And it had contaminants in it and foreign substance in it. And so that salt would quickly lose its flavor. And it would become useless. And so obviously as Jesus was teaching this, this was a concept that they they would understand. And we can understand as well. So we are striving to be pure salt. A salt where we do not lose our flavor. And what is this flavor? What is this that we're talking about that people can see? Well, it's, it's these Christian attributes. It's, it's the Beatitudes, right? Is it not what we just talked about in the Beatitudes? Living a, a, a life of humility and caring and compassionate and kindness and being the complete opposite of the world. When you're the complete opposite of the world, are you not going to stand out? If you're in the workplace and, and people are bickering and they're angry and they're gossiping and you won't engage in that, isn't that going to make you stand out? If you're compassionate and caring and loving and demonstrating kind acts and deeds to your neighbors, is that not going to stand out? Is that not going to be the opposite? So we have to be putting those on and living them. And when we're doing that, then we are the salt that we need to be. So as we already said, the salt can lose its flavor. Well, how can that happen? Well, what we've already discussed. 
by not living the life of the Beatitudes, not being kind, not living like Christ, not teaching the gospel, not striving to save the lost. We have to be the people, be in people's lives and have relationships to do these things. Now I'm going to talk a little bit more about that when we get to light, but this is a critical part of this, that we have to be engaged in people's lives. We can't be hidden. We can't be not noticeable. Salt is noticeable. Um, just like if you're using salt in your meal, if you put too much salt on your meal, is it, is it not going to be noticeable? Right? You'll notice it. As Christians, we have to be noticeable to the world, which means we have to be involved in their life and engaged in their life, which leads us to our point about being a light. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus, it's one of the places that Jesus said he was the light. So if Jesus was the light, does not it make sense as disciples of his that we would be striving to be the light as well? So what does light do? Well, light is seen. It illuminates things. It allows you to see things in the darkness and it allows everyone nearby to see. It's visible to all. Um, So like the city that is on a hill, it's obvious. It can't be hidden. You can all see it. Like that lampstand in a dark room, unless you cover it up or put a basket over it, everyone in that room can see it. It is obvious. The world is darkness. Jesus tells us that. He is the light. The disciples of Jesus are to be the light, to be the opposite of the world. This allows us to be an effective disciple, showing the lost world what they need to do to be saved. So we should never hide it or cover it if you want to do the job that the light is supposed to do. A couple of things to think about as well with this idea and this concept of of being a light and bringing glory to God and and allowing the lost, dark world to see see God, um, is that, what does that mean for us as a church? You know, as a body of Christians, if every one of us are striving to be salt, striving to be light, what is that going to do? What is that going to look like when it comes to things like evangelism? And we've talked about this before in our lessons on evangelism. Of course, our gospel meeting coming up, Brother Bob's got to take us through uh, several concepts about evangelism. But just think about how powerful that would be. Think about a dark room with simply a, a, a light on a cell phone. If we were to turn the lights off in this auditorium and I held my cell phone up with one light, we'd all be able to see that light. But when we turn on all these lights, what is the difference? 
I think about that from one singular Christian striving to be a light, striving to be an example, versus all the brethren, all the Christians in the world striving to be a light and how that's going to bring glory to God and how it's going to light up this dark world and that's going to give the greatest chance for this lost world uh, to be saved. And what does that look like again? As we've already said, it's living like Jesus. It's living the life of the Beatitudes. It's living in a way that's the complete opposite of the world. We shine to the world. We bring glory to God. And it's only through God that we can be blessed and saved. It's nothing unique. I'm not doing anything special when I'm living like salt and light. At least it shouldn't be. Right? Being a Christian, being a disciple, should be what I do every single day. That should be seen by everyone. So it's, it's not impossible for someone to see it in my life because it should be that obvious. And when people see it, there brings opportunity to teach. Like the salt losing its flavor, can a light be lost? Can a light be covered? As it says in our text, yes. So you can have a lampstand in a room, but if you cover it, it no longer can do its job. And that means we're not living the life of Christ. It can be so easy to hide our light. And I think this is what I really like as we finish our lesson this morning. I really like us to think about this from a practical standpoint. And what is it looking like in each of our own lives? For me, I've been thinking, am I really, truly living like salt and light? Is it obvious? Is it completely apparent? And when we come here, it's easy. We're all Christians. We all love God. We all want to serve God and and do what's right. And we're amongst fellow brethren that want to do that. But what about when we leave this place? And we're in areas, neighborhoods, school, work. We're in areas where people aren't as friendly. And they may not be as accepted uh, acceptive of a message about Jesus and the gospel. And they may not like that you're living the life of the Beatitudes and you're the complete opposite of them. When we go back to work, when we go to school, when we go into our neighborhoods, we have to be that salt, that light that is undeniable. And we have to be engaged in those relationships. Most of us, don't like, I think, probably, to draw attention to ourselves. We'd rather people not look at us. We'd rather people not know what we're doing. And so it's easy to go back to our homes and just stay in our home. Don't really engage with neighbors. Don't really come outside, though. It's easy to go to work and go into my office and just kind of stay in my office and just stay away from everyone. And how can we truly be salt and light if we're doing that? How can we truly be illuminating darkness, being flavorful and noticeable like salt, if that's how we're living? So this concept, I think, is unsettling to people, and even Christians, that we have to be engaging ourselves in relationships. Get out and talk to our neighbors. If you were to come to my house and talk to my neighbors next to me, would they, and you were to ask them, what do you know about Bill? 
Do you know that he's a Christian? Do you know what church he goes to? Has he ever invited you to church? If they can't say yes to some of those, am I truly being light and salt? If you go to my workplace and you ask workers that I engage in conversations with the same questions, can they answer those questions? If not, are we being the salt and light that we're supposed to be? And why is it so uncomfortable? Because when we're out in those areas, those relationships are the complete opposite. You're talking to your neighbor, talking about Saturday afternoon, what are we going to do tomorrow? He's going to stay home, he's going to watch football all day, he's going to barbecue and drink beer and do all these sorts of things. Man, I wish I just stayed in the house. Now I'm going to have to explain to him that I'm going to go to church and I don't engage in those things and he's going to look at me weird. It would have been easier if I just stayed in my house and not had a conversation. It would have been easier, but we wouldn't be being the salt and the light that God says we are to be. And we wouldn't be living the life of the Beatitudes. And we wouldn't be illuminating light on a dark world. We're going to have neighbors, we're going to have co-workers, we're going to have classmates that want to do things that are immoral. It is our responsibility to engage in relationships with them, to let them see how we live, and to how we act, and how we treat others, and that Jesus is a priority in my life. And being at worship and daily Bible study is a priority in my life. And I think oftentimes we say, yeah, I'm being a light. When I'm out mowing my lawn, they can know I'm a Christian. How? It's not good enough to live in a neighborhood and say, well, I'm a Christian and I live in a neighborhood so I must be a light. I'm a Christian and I go to work so I must be a light. It's not enough. That's a salt that's lost its flavor. That's a light that's being covered up. We've got to be careful that we're not losing our flavor, that we're not covering up our light, but that we're truly engaged in relationships and teaching the gospel. And as we've said several times, when we're teaching the gospel to others, we are increasing our own knowledge, we are deepening our own faith, we're strengthening our own trust, and we're becoming better servants every day. So it is a blessing for us, as Jesus said, blessed are those who live this way, for great is their reward in heaven. If you're here this morning, we've been talking a lot about you're already a Christian, and this is how you need to live. But maybe you're here this morning and you haven't been baptized for the remission of sins. And we certainly would encourage you to think about your relationship with God. Have you been obedient to the commands of Christ? Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? Have you placed local membership in a church of faithful saints striving to serve God in every way? If not, then that's something you need to consider because uh, your soul is at jeopardy and your eternity is at stake. And we want, of course, everyone to be able to go to heaven and to be with God and Christ and all the saints when this life is over. If you're here this morning and you would like to 
make that commitment or you'd like to study more, we could talk after this service. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, but you haven't been the light that you need to be and you know it and, and you just like the prayers of this, this congregation to help you in your walk. Whatever we can help you with in your walk, if you'll come forward now as we stand and sing.